And you mentioned Craig Ventner briefly, and obviously he's been doing a lot of publicity in the past couple of years. You've already touched on your own feeling with regards to his particular um, description of wet artificial life. But do you think there's a danger that Ventner's work and certainly the publicity that he's creating will uh, change the term artificial life, wet artificial life, but also artificial life in general? And how do those of us who are developing artificial life, be it soft, hard, or wet, how do we perturb the, the meaning back to its true original meaning? I think Venter will be a big plus to the artificial life community on balance. I mean, there'll be give and take as the sort that you're alluding to, Tom, but I think he'll be, I think he'll be a, a big benefit because he will, um, well, Venter in particular, but synthetic biology in general, has already made a big splash. Um, lots of people know about it. It's appearing in, you know, discussed in, and uh, published in the Science and Nature and journals like that regularly. So it's got a lot of attention. And, you know, for example, there's a lot of attention about the, the social and ethical implications of synthetic biology. And Venter's played a big role in all of this because he's great at drawing attention to his work and to the projects that he's involved in. You know, he's really a master at that. And um, I think that when he creates his attention, he'll bring new people in. And then when people come in, though, they will look around and they'll notice that Venter's approach and indeed the synthetic, the traditional synthetic biology approach is this kind of top-down approach where you start with existing forms of life and modify them. And the bottom-up approach is a natural partner, you know, a natural alternative method of doing a similar kind of thing or inspired by similar kinds of goals and potentially interacting in a, in a positive, you know, uh, there could be collaboration. And I think people will, it'll just make many more people know about the wet artificial life bottom-up approach. And then that will also make more people know about the soft artificial life. And I think that what you'll hear is, um, uh, well, what I would hope would happen is that terms like artificial life will start more and more to be qualified by wet art, as wet artificial life, soft artificial life, hard artificial life in the way in which we have been in our conversation tonight. And um, the venture will cause many more people to be using these terms, and then they will notice that there are these distinctions that you want to make. And even if venture is interested in top-down wet artificial life specifically, I think what you, you hook people in these, with these, uh, in any one of these ways, they'll, they'll just notice, a lot of people will notice the other similar issues like um, bottom-up wet artificial life or like uh, soft artificial life, and they'll just bring new people to the field. That's, that's, my, that's why I think he's going to be a big, a big plus um, in a net, you know, sort of net-net. He'll be a, Edger will be a big plus for, tradi for traditional artificial life. Also, the fact that he's, you know, he's doing this as a commercial venture, so there's a commercial interest, there's money involved, and that brings itself a kind of attention, it brings a kind of um, focused uh, hard work, which can, I think, only be to the benefit of um, the general field. I think, that because I'm sure that, you know, there'll be more companies like Protolife that will grow up out of the artificial life, um, you know, what artificial life has to contribute in this area. There'll be natural, many commercial spin-offs, I think. So I think that's also good for artificial life. If there can, you know, if we can show um, 
the larger world that there are some, you know, there's, uh, uh, if someone can make money based on the sort of work you've been doing, that's a kind of credibility that lends a kind of credibility to the work that you've done because, you know, it's got to be, it has to have some foundation. It's a kind of a reality check. So I, I'm, I, I really embrace what Venture has done and uh, I haven't met him myself, but I look forward to it and I think, uh, you know, I'm following with great interest stuff he's doing, even though I think that the, um, you know, the, the, uh, the orientation that traditional artificial life brings to these same questions is I, I personally think it's deeper and broader than just focusing on, um, you know, making an artificial genome like he is. But I'd say more power to him, more power to him. I think it'll just help us all. It'll bring more people to biota.org, I think, ultimately. Well, I think that's a very positive account. If I can play the devil's advocate, certainly as a soft artificial life developer, and this has been something that's been discussed in the community, the launch of Will Wright's Spore was greeted with similar hope. My concern with regards to publicity is that it puts set dates with regards to certain deliverables which haven't actually been met. And the kind of media hysteria that went into a lot of Ventnor's press releases towards the end of last year or leading up to the end of last year, put, you know, lowered the wind in a number of sales with regards to the potential of this kind of technology. Certainly my own experience with regards to Spore was that it was so tightly branded, as all of Ventnor's work is as well, that it made it impossible for, uh, you know, soft artificial life uh, developers even folks who are doing stuff that spoke more broadly, like what Bruce does, to actually engage in these kind of open discussions. And uh, my sense is that the branding component and also the potential for immense failure is two things which aren't always positives in this regard. Bruce, do you want to talk a little bit about this as well? I've been in the field of virtual worlds and sort of before that virtual reality and through several uh, boom and bust waves. And I remember having a conversation with Chris Langton, who uh, we managed to get involved in our side of things, which was uh, avatars and virtual world cyberspaces. And at that time, he said um, he was sort of on the downslope of the artificial life interest of the early 90s, and he was uh, quite burned out by it. And I always, I always fear that kind of thing occurring. It certainly occurred for the avatar space in the late 90s, early 2000s, with all the companies going bankrupt. Um, and you know, it's it's good to set expectations. It's it's maybe a little bit less wise to set dates around them. But I think the interesting thing is how one can creates a continuing movement. And certainly, you talk about virtuality. You talk about avatars. I mean, I think the, the potential for artificial life is in some regard greater and in some regard more commercially applicable in a number of areas. But when someone is trying to rebrand a term specifically that has such a long kind of heritage and history and so many names connected with it, the difficulty, particularly in a kind of contemporary media age, is that people just associate the term artificial life now with, you know, the half a dozen or maybe a dozen major articles with regards to Ventnor's work that were published last year as opposed to what you're doing with uh, Proto-Life Mark and what Bruce is doing with the EvoGrid, what we're trying to do collectively with Biota. And this is the problem with regards to these kind of individuals, you know, branding particular terms. In terms of a broader community, do you think we should all approach the media following 
Ventnor-related articles and say, we're also doing artificial life. How do you see us interacting with the media proactively to bring the message out to a broader audience? Uh, interesting question. I, I should say in general that the, the other issues you raised about branding and the, um, the you know, uh, the possibility of immense failure are, are, are good points to raise. I guess when I talk with the media, it's not usually, they're not calling me to specifically comment on Venter's thing. It's usually in a slightly broader context. I think it's useful to use those opportunities whenever possible to show people, you know, show the reporter, whoever you're talking with, the, the broader context in which someone like Venter's work fits. So, you know, you could explain that it's a top-down approach to making artificial life. There is a bottom-up approach, too. That's, that's, that's another uh, complementary effort that's ha- happening around the world. And, um, you know, the top-down approach is easier. It will be faster. It will have results sooner, in a way. Uh, but the bottom-up approach, uh, uh, by contrast, has the potential to provide deeper insights because you have a bigger playing field. You, know, you won't be constrained by the historical contingencies of, of actual life in a way that uh, the venture will be. You know, working with mycoplasma genitalium, for example, as they've chosen to do, uh, and that you know that decision went back to something like 1995. Um, that has set a lot of constraint on on what they've been able to do. It's made certain things easier, but it's also made certain things harder because it's such a quirky little bug. And so that you know they had to spend an immense amount of effort dealing with those quirks. And as a result, the the generality of the lessons that they learn will be limited as opposed to someone who's just starting with raw materials and has a complete open canvas. So I would try to um, bring in uh, these kinds of broader, this broader perspective and to help situate what Venter is doing and why it's important, excuse me, why it's, why it's uh, interesting. But as a result, also shed light on the interest, the similar complementary, in some cases deeper interest in these, uh, allied uh, harder projects like like bottom up when artificial life, and then it's natural to bring in um, uh, you know soft and hard artificial life when they become relevant too. I you know you, you may be right in the you describe my comment as optimistic, and it might be that I'm you know could be that I'm overly optimistic and and uh, naive to some extent. I just don't know. You know, time will uh, I might be proven wrong. Certainly. We have another caller on the line, so I just want to bring in the uh, the other caller. Hello? Hi, Dick Gordon here. Dick, it's wonderful to have you on. Do you, okay. As you listen to this evening's discussion, do you have any questions for Mark? Uh, well, I sort of want to give a deja vu uh, comment. Uh, I was present at the first uh, press conference at which the synthesis of life was announced, uh, and that was Jim Daniele in the late 1960s. Uh, he had taken apart uh, amoeba into nuclei and, uh, and uh, enucleated cells and then uh, put them back together and he got live cells. And uh, uh, I, at that press conference, uh, uh, Robert Bender and I also announced our work on computer tomography. We only got local coverage. This is in Buffalo, New York. And uh, Jim Daniela got worldwide coverage. And yet, uh, I'm curious if Mark even knows of Jim Daniele's uh, work on synthesis of life. I don't. I don't. 
You don't. Okay. <laughs> now, Jim Daniele, uh, you know, he was a he was a, a, a good scientist, and he was the one uh, uh, who came up with the bilayer lipid model of the membrane. So he's he's got his own place in the history of biology. Uh, but this is one of the things he did, and you might want to look at the uh, the rise and fall of this notion that he had uh, actually synthesized life, uh, and compare it to what. You guys are doing what Ventner's doing, and perhaps don't worry about it, but get on with the work. Yeah, that's I, I hear here on the last point. Yeah. So I wanted to move on to the the final topic with regards to the International Society of Artificial Life and the wide number of artificial life courses that are currently being taught internationally to both undergraduates and postgraduates. We had Larry Yeager on uh, a month ago, Mark, and we discussed this very topic. But I'm interested in, in hearing your thoughts with regards to uh, all these courses worldwide and whether you think the International Society has any role to play with regards to firstly getting a degree of communication between the academics and potentially offering some kind of standardization to what a base artificial life course should look like. Uh, this is a great, great topic. I think there's a huge uh, opportunity here that the International Society for Artificial Life could um, help a lot with. Right now it's doing nothing in this area just through, uh, because basically because the society is not functioning very well, it's, it's just not doing, it's not doing very much. Not, not that it's functioning poorly, it's just not doing very much. And I'm trying right now to, um, there's, a, there's a new election, there'll be a new board elected, and depending on, I'm hoping this new board will be much more active and can take, uh, take advantage of various opportunities, and one of them is this one. I myself am in the, of course, as many of you, many of you probably are, have, and uh, certainly many of the listeners have, um, you know, taught various courses on artificial life, and so I'm putting together these, these curriculum myself, and it would be fantastic to have a centralized resource where we could go and look at what our colleagues are doing, and, um, and then even take it further and start to standardize some, some bits of this uh, curriculum in fact, another aspect of this that I would like to see is at the Artificial Life conferences, I'd like to see tutorials in standard background in Artificial Life. There's some basic stuff that all of us should know to be, uh, to have sort of uh, um, considered as part of your literacy in Artificial Life. And this is particularly hard because it's an interdisciplinary field. People are coming with different kinds of backgrounds, different kinds of... Um, uh, expectations, knowing different kinds of literature, different kinds of techniques, and it would be really extremely useful to have a series of tutorials so that when new people come, they can go and get the background they need in these different areas. That's not being done. The society, I hope, would play a leadership role in that, um, and uh, that and among other things. So I, I think it's a great idea. It's not being done now, but I, I would like to help make that happen. So I'm, I'm, in fact, who, who do you think is the... Uh, who would be some of the best people to contact to uh, who are in touch with these courses and know what's going on and would like to work on this? Well, I think Google gives you the best answers. I mean, the folks that I'm going to name are just people that I'm in direct correspondence with. But what I've found, I mean, even my hometown of Canberra, Australia, now has an artificial life course being taught at the local military college. So I think what's fascinating is these courses are cropping up organically, and it's just a matter for us to really formulate a list and then begin the correspondence with all these people to get a sense initially of what they're teaching and then get a sense of what their immediate needs are in terms of standardization. Yeah, yeah. 
do you consider the international society an industrial group as well as an academic organization, Mark? And with that in mind, do you think the current international economic downturn will impact artificial life research? I think that the International Society for Artificial Life could be an industry group. Right now, it's not an industry group, uh, partly because there's just so little, so little industry at all uh, that's really deeply connected with artificial life that I'm aware of. Do you of. think that's the case, actually? I mean, if you look at companies like iRobot, certainly my stuff is used by Apple and Intel. I know of other people's stuff that is used by you know, IBM, Hewlett-Packard, certainly within the soft artificial life sphere, it has been picked up by a number of industries, and as we've already noted, uh, you know, pharma companies seem to be using components of artificial life currently. I mean, do you think that's just a lacking in terms of the general surveying of the kind of companies that are using artificial life technology? I think that's probably largely it. I think that is it. I think, it's, I think the examples you raised are, are good examples and typical examples, so they're, they're a piece of some larger, in many cases, there'll be a piece of some larger company, and unless you happen to know what's going on in that company, you might, you might not know about that particular piece. But I think, again, this is a, the bottom line that I say that there's an opportunity here that I would be delighted if the society uh, got involved in. With regard to the economic downturn globally that's going on right now, I don't think that's going to have a, I don't myself don't think that'll have a big impact on artificial life research. So here I'm thinking uh, uh, not so much in companies, but in um, academic settings, mainly because I think most of that research is on the fringe. You know, the, the work um, that's in the, um, the mainstream where most of the money is going, I think you'll, it will suffer more. Sort of traditional central topics will suffer more because their research will be, um, you know, the amount of dollars that will be cut in those fields will be much larger. On the other hand, being on the fringes uh, as artificial life is means that it's always precarious to live out there. Um, and there's no doubt going to be less money on the fringes in terms of um, uh, the sort of port. In, um, uh, you know, as, as the economic times in general get bad, then money for special exotic projects also goes down. But but I guess my feeling is that most of it's being done on a shoestring right now, and I think that um, we'll probably be able to keep a lot of it going on a shoestring through this downturn. That's my personal guess. Dick, I know you called in late. Do you have any questions for Mark? Uh, well, I'm wondering if he's thinking beyond uh, the single cell. Uh, the uh, you know, organisms are uh, both symbiotic arrangements of bacteria, and uh, I mean, I, I, I tend to think of us as sort of uh, overgrown uh, bacterial colonies, and uh, I'm wondering uh, if he's thinking about getting beyond the single cell. We have been thinking about this. I share your view about us and about life in general that um, symbiosis is extremely important. And um, we have been making, well, in the particular, I can tell you about the particular research group that, that we've been involved in. We have been, and I guess some of the work that I know that's closely related around the world, people like us have been making models, so soft artificial life models, of these collections of cells, trying to understand the, you know, how once we make protocells, they will work together in communities. But that's all at the model stage because we're still, you know, the, the protocells that we make right now are so, are, are so limited in capacity that they, they don't really 
trying well, to think of any examples where they do anything. You don't think you can get some simple quorum sensing in? I think that that could be possible, and I know people are working on things like that. So I think that that, I think that, I guess I was just saying, I think this is a, this is a, there are a number of people who are interested in this, and there is some work happening, um, and I, I think it's a promising area. I think it's a promising area. The, part of the reason I'm hesitating a bit is that some of the work that I know has, of course, been done in, is being done in sort of synthetic biology, so it's taking existing organisms and modifying them to do things like um, act in communities in new kinds of ways. So to, for example, create Turing patterns, you know, two-dimensional. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess the question, I, I, I don't know, is there any evidence as to whether uh, uh, these interactions are uh, very primitive or later developments in the phylogeny of the bacteria? I don't know. I don't know personally. But I think that's a I think that's a, a interesting question, um, and I think that there are people who yeah I'm just I'm just the wrong person to ask about about that. But I, I I do agree with you that I think that the collective behaviors are extremely important. The, the work that I'm most familiar with is so very simple, and they're focusing on things like simply the adhesion of protocells into clumps, yeah. and the fact that by doing that they exhibit different kinds of behaviors. So it's very, very primitive, but it's certainly on people's minds. I guess when I was involved, I was involved in a research, this, this, this uh, big uh, research project for four years uh, funded by the EU on programmable artificial cell evolution, or PACE, and there was a part of that project devoted to the, the uh, you know, collections of cells, and it always struck me as a, sort of the poor sister in the group because it <laughs> Relatively hypothetical still to me, and I think most people, they got much less money, for example, than everyone else. Yeah, well, those those of us who work up on the modeling of embryogenesis level tend to get no money, so <laughs> <laughs> so we're 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 used to that. <laughs> yeah, this is the algorithms and blues component that people have complained about in previous lives. So, Bruce, do you have any do you have any final questions for Mark? None at all. I'm just looking forward to meeting you at some point. And, Mark, if you're in the uh, Bay Area in a couple of weeks, I'll be back from London. I don't know how long you have have um, down here, but it would be good to get together if possible. Yeah, okay. If you can, uh, can you just shoot me an email? I'm, I'll be down there on uh, – there's an event in Palo Alto, Future Salon. I don't know exactly what it is, but I'll find out when I go down there on the 20th. And so I'll be down – there that day, and then uh, doing some things in the Bay Area that weekend. Okay, okay. I'll probably be back on the 23rd. I might miss you, but yeah, I've spoken at future salons. They're, they're quite uh, good events. Okay, great. Good. Okay, Mark, I've got one more question. Uh, the uh, uh, I, I, I've read a couple of chapters in uh, the Protocells book so far, and uh, I gather that a lot of it is kind of you support the cells and hope that you can get them to uh, become self-supporting in some way. Okay? Okay. Uh, you know, you sort of create a microenvironment that uh, sort of makes up for the lack of the cell being, uh, how shall you say, uh, uh, able to get along on its own. Okay, this sounds like what you're... What you're describing sounds uh, like it mainly describes one particular approach, 
which is this microfluidic complementation approach. Is that what you right, have in mind? Right, right. That's, okay. that's, that's as far as I've gotten in the book. Okay. Okay. Now, uh, what I, uh, I've been batting an idea around and uh, did a little publication on it that uh, if, you, if you look at the origin of life, from the point of view of the origin of life, that what an organism has to reach a state of being able to do uh, involves acts of what I call perception. And these perceptual acts are basically of three types. Uh, they're uh, find something to eat, recognize it and eat it, uh, avoid being eaten, and uh, find a mate. And all three of those involve acts of perception. Now, uh, I don't recall, but is there anything on perception in in the uh, protocell book? Good question. I don't think there is off the top of my head. And I think that's an omission. Um, I don't think, let me just think. I don't think there is. This work that I, I, I alluded to the fact that at the last artificial life conference, there was a, there's a few, there were a few presentations in wet artificial life, and one of them won the award for the most interesting work. That bit of work was on a certain kind of protocells. These certainly were not alive, but they did engage in a kind of perception they could sense. They had a kind of primitive chemotactic, chemotaxis. Uh-huh. They could sense the chemical gradient and then move on the basis of that chemical gradient. This yeah, that's cer- certainly an excellent chem- uh, chemotaxis is an excellent prototype. Yeah. So that's, so that's just to say that I think people are aware that, that uh, um, perceptual acts are fundamental in life. And I think, in fact, it's connected with, I think the protocell book, if it doesn't bring this up, I think this is an omission. And uh, what the protocell book focuses on is, as you're saying, these self-supporting or autonomously sort of creating and self-sustaining and self-assembling uh, like structures, you know, that have a metabolism and everything, and can reproduce themselves and, and so potentially evolve. But but it, but that doesn't address the question, you know, what are those entities doing? Like, do they have? Are they striving for something? Are they, as you put it, are they agents? You know, are they trying to accomplish something? Do they have goals of their own? <laughs> yeah, I guess you could put it that way. I try not to use such strong language, but philosophically strong language. But. Uh, <laughs> I guess what I'm saying, insofar as protocells are an approach to uh, solving, let's say, a an origin of life as opposed to quote the origin of life, right? Uh, we may have to solve the same problems with them, and that is, how do we get from a system that's not perceiving to one that is perceiving? Yep, I, I agree with you. So this one little bit of work that I was alluding to might you, you might find interesting. It's it was published in Jacks in the last year, at some point, or at least the first the preliminary publication was. Okay, I, I sent you a couple email messages while you were talking. Maybe you could send me a reference for it. Yep, yep. You'll have my email address there. Great. Terrific. Okay. Well, Mark, I think what you found is that when you come on Bios Live, you, uh, you know, you leave with more questions in some regard than you than you give answers, and I'd certainly welcome you to appear on a future bio live when we can discuss one of the, the many questions that have been raised through our discussion this evening. It's been wonderful to have the opportunity to, to chat with you. I enjoy talking with you, Bruce, and Dick, too, and I look forward to interacting with you both in the future. And, um, Tom, I'm always happy to 
to be here on um, Biota.org. I'm really glad that you're doing this. I think it's uh, appreciated by many people. I did my graduate work in Oregon, by the way. I regard it as the most beautiful state in the uh, U.S. Me too. Me too. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Friday, February 20th at 8 p.m. Pacific, we will have outstanding questions raised from uh, this show and previous shows, and maybe uh, if Dick can call in for that show, we'll, uh, we'll talk more on some of the topics raised. So I'd like to thank you all for, uh, for calling in and participating, and thanks for the folks listening. Okay, good talking to you. Good talking. Thank you. Good night.